Join me now in prayer. Thank you, Father, that you love the world so much. You didn't hold on to your greatest treasure. You were devoted to us, and you sent Jesus to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve in our place and to resurrect so that we might live in devotion with you. Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know the saving love of the Son of God, may today be the day of salvation. And for all of us, Father, would you give us a clear vision of the devoted, deep, deep love of Jesus for our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We continue our series in the book of Ephesians, and we, last week, began a mini-series on marriage and the family, as Paul, in, we'll start today in verse 21 of chapter 5, and we'll go through 33. Paul talks about the beautiful gift of Christian marriage and how marriage is a metaphor for the gospel but also how the gospel is a metaphor for marriage. We'll see today what it means to be a devoted Christian wife and what it means to be a devoted Christian husband. And devotion is central to the meaning of what it means to be a Christian. So we'll have to understand first what devotion is, We'll have to understand why it's important, what it reveals about our own hearts. And then we'll look at the devoted Christian wife. She lives and displays this devotion as she submits to her husband. She respects her husband. And as she completes her husband. I will say that often when this passage is read at weddings, I get a lot of different looks from women. Sometimes I get the rolling of the eyes look. Other time I get the evil eye look. Sometimes I get a raising of the eyebrow. And sometimes a smile. These words given by the Apostle Paul to the church, we will see are words for every Christian. Now we're going to be listening through the lens of the devoted Christian wife. But we'll see how this is a message for every believer as we're called to live that devotion in response, reciprocal love to our Savior. Ephesians chapter 5, I'll begin in verse 21. That's found on page 1823 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her 
by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. It is true that marriage is on the attack, under the attack of deterioration, of dissolution of its importance, cracks, faults, and marriages are falling apart in the culture. But marriages are falling apart in the church. Marriages are under attack in the church. Statistics tell us that the average time of divorce for a marriage is about seven years before the deterioration and the collapse of the marriage takes place. There's also an uptick around 15 or 20 years when children are out of the home. I was stunned just recently when I met with a young couple having been married just two years and they were not members of our church, they'd been referred to me and I was stunned by the fact that one member was done with the marriage and that uh, member talked about how the marriage had only made this person extremely unhappy. The other person seemed to be there to try to fight for the marriage, but the more I listened, what I felt that that one was fighting for was self-justification, to prove that they had not caused the problems and that the other was at fault. Sociologists tell us that three questions usually determine whether someone gets a divorce or not. Three questions that move around subconsciously in the head of married people. One, do I feel happy in my marriage? A constant question that runs unconsciously in the background of our minds. Two, do I have a better or more desirable alternative? Or three, am I ready to deal with the social pressure that might be preventing me now from divorce. Sociologists tell us that when two of the three of these questions are answered in the affirmative, divorce is probable. All three in divorce almost always happens. Now, I know we're talking about an issue that is very painful for many of us. All of us have been affected by deteriorating dissolving marriages, some personally, some in your family of origin, some in your own lives. And I want you to know that I'm not painting a 
broad brush at you or your circumstances or your situation. I'm teaching the Word of God that God calls us to understand in relation to Christian marriage. But I will say that each of us needs to listen to this sermon today, not externalizing what's being said, not elbowing the person next to you, not thinking about a family member, but thinking about your own life. And I want you to know that even if you're a non-married person, whether it's you've never been married or you're divorced, this text is for you as well. Paul says it's a mystery because marriage is a metaphor for the gospel, but also the gospel is a metaphor for marriage. So Paul is speaking to all of us here this morning. So what does this reveal about our modern culture where marriages are just dissolving around us, marriages are falling apart? I think it reveals that going into marriage, we have one or two ideas about what marriage is to be. And some believe that marriage is as convenience, and others believe that marriage is as covenant. This text, which is the text in the New Testament that spends more verses with more detail than any other place in the New Testament, this text speaks of marriage as covenant. Well, what is marriage as convenience? Marriage as convenience is driven primarily by self-fulfillment and self-indulgence. And selfishness, the Bible teaches us, is the corrupted freedom that's at the heart of all sinful attitudes or behaviors. Marriage as convenient believes that marriage is disposable, that marriage is experimental, or that marriage is not permanent. But marriage as covenant, as the Bible teaches, sees marriage as a relational contract. That word covenant means relational contract. And it comes with obligations, and blessings and curses, curses are attached, and they are displayed by vows. Now, we said last week that Marriage is a union, an exclusive monogamous commitment between one man and one woman. Marriage is the foundation of the home and of society. What holds a marriage together? What's the glue? What's the anchor? What's the foundation? This text reminds us that it is devotion that holds that contract together. That devotion that's displayed in the devotion of God in His demonstration of His love and giving His best and nearest gift, Jesus Christ, we're told that's to transform us to live as people who are devoted. What do we mean by devotion? Well, the Bible depicts devotion as delightful self-denial. Those phrases seem like they're in contradiction to one another, don't they? Delightful self-denial. But it is the description of the Christian life. We're told that Jesus, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. 
It was delightful self-denial when Jesus told the disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to hold on to his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will discover it, will find it in delightful devotion to me. Paul says that here in chapter 5, verse 21. Notice he says, submit yourselves to one another in the reverence of Christ. That word submit there is to voluntarily yield to another because of love. To voluntarily yield to another because of love. It's often used as a military term, but it's not a term of forced surrender. It's a term of glad surrender, delightful self-denial, delightful self-sacrifice. Well, that's what devotion is. Why is it important? It says here Paul instructs husbands and wives that they are to love as Christ loves us. It's the defining disposition of every follower of Christ. Our lives are are to be defined by devotion, by relational loyalty, where we delightfully serve others so that their joy might be full. We've studied this in Ephesians chapter 1, where we're told that the Father before the foundations of the world predestined us in love to adoption as sons. He sent Jesus to redeem us, it says, by his blood to demonstrate his love and the Spirit to seal us so that we might be among the beloved. That reality means that God's devotion to us started before we were here and it'll never end. And he says we're to display that kind of devotion, delightful self-denial in our families, in our churches, and to our neighbors. And Paul says we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our lives as Christians have been caught up in the beautiful vision We've been stunned by the beauty of his love for us. And Paul says, we can never get over it. We will never recover. We revere him. We don't take him for granted. We revere him. We don't speak disrespectfully of him. We revere him. We don't dismiss his voice or his place in our lives. We revere him. We don't ignore him, we revere him. We are awestruck by his love. Paul says that this is the motivation in which we submit to one another. It's out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you notice through the book of Ephesians, Paul addresses women and he addresses them first as those made in the image of God. He says in chapter 4 that we are the image in God's likeness. That means, women, that you, in your femininity, are made in the image of God. Genesis, as we read last week, says that he made them male and female in the image of God. 
Now, two weeks from now, when we talk about the phrase leave and cleave, I'm going to talk more about femininity and masculinity. But women and girls, let me say this to you. Your femininity is not culturally constructed. It's divine design. God has made them male and female, and you're to live into the image of God as a woman. But he also says that we are daughters and sons of the king. So you are made in the image of God. You're a member of God's house. And now, if you're married, you are also a wife, and you are to live out your devotion to Christ in your marriage. And that's what brings us to this reality. Why did Paul strike this chord? Why did he give this, Im this imperative? Because the problem is we don't live in delightful self-denial. We drift back towards our selfishness, and selfishness is strong in us, and instead of giving, we take. Instead of patiently supporting, we belittle. Instead of building up, we tear down. You see, the problem is not that God has not called us to live in devotion. The problem is our inability because of our selfishness. The Saturday Evening Post years ago demonstrated this in a poem called The Seven Years of a Married Cold. And it speaks of how when you're first in love and you're married, you make these promises to yourself and to your spouse of what kind of relationship you want to have and the devotion you want to display. I'll quickly go through some of these, but you can hear the pain as we see the reality that sets in all too often as our hearts grow cold rather than devoted. The first year, husband sees that the wife has a cold. Oh, sugar dumpling, I've been so worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling what could come around you. I'm putting you in the hospital to get a general checkup. I know the food is lousy there, but I'll order the delivery of your favorite meal. I've already arranged it with the floor superintendent. Year two. Listen, darling, I don't like that sound of that cough. I'll call Dr. Miller to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a little girl, and I will take care of everything. Year four. Now look, dear, let's be sensible. After you fed the kids, washed the dishes, and finished the laundry, you can lie down. You need some rest. Year five. Why don't you just find some aspirin? I'm sure there's some in the cabinet. Year six. If you just gargle or something, instead of sitting around barking like a seal, you wouldn't be bothering all of us. And then year seven. For Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give us all pneumonia? Our best intentions fade quickly, don't they? When we realize, do we have the desire in ourselves to live this kind of devotion? Well, Augustine described it this way in the City of God. He says that all improper actions are the result of disordered loves. All actions are the result of some love, but the City of Man, those people who live in the City of Man, they love they're devoted to the love of greed or selfishness. But the city of God, those are those who love or are devoted to the love of friendship 
and they're devoted uh, in relationship. Paul tells wives, display submission so that your husband might see Christ's bright devotion. And he tells husbands, display loving nurture so that Christ's bright devotion might be on display. The issue here is Christ's character is at stake. He's our model. He's our means. He's also our motivation. And we are to love our spouses as Christ loved the church. Now, Genesis 3 tells us that after the first divorce, when mankind divorced God and separated himself from God, God brought curses for their disobedience. We're told that the women will suffer in relationship to their children, multiply pain in childbirth, and they will suffer in the relationship to their husband. The phrase is, her desire will be for your, her husband, but he will rule over her. Now, this is a difficult phrase to translate, but basically it could mean, wives, you will now resent his rule in your life. It also could mean, men, you will now rule resentfully over your wife. But it probably means both of those things. You will resent his rule, and he will rule resentfully over you. We're told that the serpent would be crushed by the Savior in Genesis 3, that Jesus would come, and he would come to divorce us from our selfishness and to teach us what it means to live in the fullness of his love. How do you do that? as a wife. Paul says three ways here in this text. You display your devotion by submitting to your husband, by respecting your husband, and by completing your husband. Now women, I want you to know next week we're going to talk to the husbands. But Paul begins with the wives. Why did Paul begin with the wives? It's interesting, isn't it? He also, when he addresses the families, he begins with the children. And then when he addresses the servants and the masters, he begins with the servants. It's because in that day, the gospel was always elevating every relationship to the dignity and equality that was found in the fact that we're made in the image of God. We're members of the same household. We're joint heirs of salvation. So Paul begins with the women. And he says, submit to your husbands. Three different times Paul says, submit to your husbands. Modern translations, people will say, well, Paul was moving uh, the, cultural, uh, dis the cultural brokenness along the way, and he was saying that, but they should love their wives, the wives should love the husbands. Does he really expect us to live this way? Well, Paul never instructs husbands to submit to their wives. He does instruct wives to love their husbands, but he never says for husbands to submit to their wives. What is he getting at here? Submission means negatively, you must, wives, fight the temptation to be self-directing. And positively, you must seek to promote partnership in your marriage. You must say, I will be receptive to him. I will be supportive of him. I will live together with him. John Stott says it this way, there's nothing demeaning about this, for her submission is not to be an unthinking obedience 
to his rule, but rather a grateful acceptance of his care. Now, just a few reflections on what submission does not mean. It doesn't mean that wives are not to ask questions, give feedback, make decisions, or recommend pathways. It doesn't mean that a wife should agree with everything a husband says, and it doesn't mean that a wife should obey their husband if their husband is asking them to do something sinful. The Bible says we must obey God rather than man. It also doesn't mean that any kind of tyrannical demandedness from the husband should be tolerated. Abusive speech or abusive action should never be tolerated. If you're in a marriage where there's that kind of abuse going on, you need to ask for help. You need to go to a pastor or to a friend and ask for help. Paul does say wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. And it probably is speaking of this total experience that we're to share together, not just the sexual intimacy, but the total experience of what it means to live together. And as I said, at times, wives, you will disagree. And if you will speak to your husband and you too will talk through these issues, it'll be very rare that you can't come to a united decision. Next week, as I mentioned, the heavy responsibility is on the man to love his wife as Christ has loved the church. First, submit to your husband. Secondly, respect your husband. This means negatively to resist the temptation of being self-demanding. But positively, it means to cultivate companionship, to be alert to him, to be aware and attentive to his needs. I will use words and actions to cultivate companionship. Husbands are tempted to use their position as a dictatorial rule for self-indulgence, but wives can be tempted to use their words as a way to control or diminish relationship with their husbands. Often when Sandra and I counsel young couples, we tell young wives, make it your practice to catch your husband doing something right and then tell them how that made you feel and tell them why that's important to you and lead him by your affirmation. But I will tell these young wives, be careful about your tone and be careful about your tack-ons. First, be careful about your tone. You could say, it's possible that you could say, well, thanks, thanks a lot. Or you could say, well, thanks a lot. You see, your tone speaks more clearly than those actual words. But watch your tack-ons as well. When you use a phrase like, all the time, or never, you are tacking on a kind of shame that will take away from your affirmation. So if you say, Thank you for volunteering to pick up the children since you've never done that since the Ice Age, but I'm so thrilled for the first time, finally, you showed a little consideration. That will not be affirming, ladies. You must overcome the resistance of self-sufficiency as well. You're called to complete your husbands. What does that mean? Well, briefly, let me just mention this. We'll pick this back up in two weeks when we talk about leave and cleave. 
It's, it's not your job, ladies, to fix your husband or change your husband. Resist the temptation to use guilt and shame. That's not effective as well. But bring his needs before the Lord and seek to be the right kind of person for him. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, I would encourage you to go and read that uh, portion of Scripture because Peter gives more detail about this submission and love relationship. And one of the things that he says is that men should be listening to their wives or their prayers will be hindered. But he says, women, you are to hope in God and through your chaste behavior, they will see your devotion to Christ and that will be a powerful demonstration of self-denial. Let me just ask you this morning, marriages, are you living in delightful self-denial? Have you decided that the welfare of your spouse is more important to you than your own welfare? Have you decided the happiness and the well-being of your spouse is more important than your own happiness? That's when you can begin to sense when those desires are in your heart. What's growing in you is this devoted love of Christ that's now filling your heart. It's pretty amazing when it's Paul's describing this text and he pauses and he's, he's confused. He said, it's a mystery. I was talking about marriage, but what does he say? I'm talking about Christ in his church. He's called up in the reality. Our Savior is devoted to us. Our Savior cares more about our well-being than our own. Our Savior sacrifices delightfully so that we might live in union with God. Because marriage is a metaphor for the gospel, and the gospel is a metaphor for marriage. Let's go back to those questions that we ask about revering Christ. Let's apply this to our spouses. We revere her. We don't take her for granted. We revere him. We don't speak disrespectfully to him. We revere her. We don't discount her or dismiss her place in our lives. We revere him. We do not ignore him. We're in awe that we belong to him. We're in awe that I belong to her. That's delightful self-denial. That's devotion. Well, what if you're here and you're not a believer? What if you're here and you're in trouble in your marriage? I want you to know that this text teaches us that we can be restored. We can be renewed. Sometimes when I use these illustrations in marriage counseling, I talk about a marriage can get to the point where on the table there's two boxes. There's his box and her box. And without knowing it, you can find yourself just pushing your box over towards your spouse while they're pushing their box over towards you. And your disappointment is tied to the fact that your spouse is ignoring your box and your needs are going unmet. Sometimes you'll put a bow around your box to try to draw attention. Sometimes uh, you'll use anger or disappointment. This text tells us that delightfully, we're called to open up our spouse's box, to unpack it, to see where there are broken places that need to be healed, to see where there's beauty that needs to be on display. That is our call. 
to complete Christ's beauty along with our spouse. When I asked Sandra to marry me, I quoted Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find. Her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not ever lack gain. That's what Paul says here in Ephesians 5. He says, we are the delight of our groom. He says that Jesus delightfully is devoted to our good, and it transforms us. It changes us. It makes us new. This mystery is great, Paul says, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Let's pray together. Father, we see and hear of brokenness and beauty in the text, and we long for your craftsmanship. We long to journey together for this restorative work. Lord, we failed our marriages. We failed our fellowship. We don't love the way Jesus loves. And Father, we need your help and your strength. I do pray for marriages that are under stress and duress and tension. I pray for the humility to ask for help. I pray for those that are here that have been through the brokenness in a marriage that has wounded. I pray that this body would be a place where we could take out those broken places and seek your healing, and we would work to display beauty. This would be a safe place to talk about hurts and wrongs. I pray also, Father, that you would give us a model in Jesus Christ that will make us hopeful even in our hurts. I pray for young people who've never been married, that they would see that this is a gift, this model that you've given us. I pray for people who are divorced, who are non-married now, that they would understand that your devoted love will never leave them. And we pray for the hope that is in the gospel as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.